And Lord, that's our prayer. It's the word of praise on our lips of your greatness. And God, we know that it's really there's no words can capture uh, who you are, your reality, but it's the best we have to say thank you and to worship. And we know it brings you great joy to hear of our love for you. And so we pray, Lord, you'd come and you would be great amongst us today, that you would reveal yourself in just new ways. God, we pray that as we talk about um, what you went through to set us free, as we talk about what it looks like to surrender our lives to become the people that we were created to be, we pray that you'd come and speak and heal and teach and lead and guide and do the things that only you can do. We are here for you. We want to give you full access to our hearts today. We invite you now to come by the power of your spirit and to speak powerfully to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Rocky P. Good to see you. <laughs> hey, I want to welcome you today. Go ahead and have a seat. I do want to welcome you, whether you're here in our interim worship center or over in the summit, our live uh, kind of video uh, uh, center or back in the back or even podcasting. And we're just glad to be here together. Um, we're going to go into a time of teaching in a little bit, but I got a few things to share with you. Uh, first of all, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here and, uh, it's good to be home. We had, uh, we had an amazing trip to Israel, uh, that we just got home Friday night, uh, late and, uh, it's great to be back. We had a tremendous trip and I want to thank those of you who are praying for us for our safety, our experience, our God moments, because, uh, they happen, and uh, we had a tremendous time. I'm going to throw up just a couple of pictures for you uh, that just you know, hardly can capture, but the uh, first one here that's coming up is a Sea of Galilee. That's not actually us, but that's the kind of boat that we went across on, and it was just so fun to, uh, we took over the boat, we cranked up the tunes right away. We put it on, we just kind of took over, and they said, hey, we normally do like the anthem, and national anthem, no, we always here for Jesus. And so we just kind of cranked it up, and we just worshiped. It was amazing. It was 59 of us on this, uh, 59 of us uh, on this tour, and it was uh, an amazing time. After that time on the, out there on the Sea of Galilee, one of the guys came up to me and I said, I don't think there was a dry eye uh, on that boat. And it was just powerful, uh, worshiping uh, him out of the place where he walked on water. Uh, and we had a tremendous, and then next slide, uh, this is actually one of the Mount of Olives. And it probably looks like one you've often seen in, in postcards or whatever, but this was our shot. We were on the Mount of Olives. You can see down there below, you can see the Temple Mount. Um, you can see where the Dome of the Rock is today, this uh, kind, of a, uh, the, kind of a Muslim uh, monument. But that's where the temple was in Jesus' time. The temple was about two or three times as large as that. But you can see from the Mount of Olives how you can look right down into Temple Mount. And, and so we've talked about that in this series. Uh, and then the next scene is right there on Temple, right there where we are, is the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we're going to be talking about that today. But again, we put on some worship tunes, just kind of worship God there in the, in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. It's a tremendous trip. Uh, it was crazy. This uh, really second day uh, out, we were uh, down by the Dead Sea and it rained. And you might say, well, that's no big deal. Well, it has not rained in May uh, for over 40 years uh, in the Dead Sea. And so there was flash floods, and so we got to go through that on a bus, and it was very exciting. We kind of could have used Moses there to part the Red Sea. There's cars stuck. It was crazy. But uh, they were, uh, all the, 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 the guides' wives were super envious that they've gone for 30 years wanting to see flash floods in the Dead Sea, and they were going to see them. But we just had an amazing time. And so thanks for your prayers, and uh, it's great to be back. Uh, this weekend, a couple uh, outreach things we're doing. Uh, as you drove up, you saw the, the, uh, the truck out there. We're collecting supplies for the San Fernando um, uh, Valley uh, rescue mission that had some major burn, uh, burn down a couple weeks ago. And so if you brought those today, if you forgot them in your car, be sure to put them out there. Um, this weekend, we also have about 65 people down in Mexico building houses and kind of reaching out to the community. So there's a lot going on there. And then finally, I just wanted to make you um, aware of one opportunity that's coming up this summer. Um, during the summer, our life groups take the summer off, um, and we're going to be uh, doing a couple of our essential courses. Uh, our essentials, <coughs> for those of you who are new, our essentials are courses that we've created 
that um, tackle topics that we believe are absolutely essential for walking well with Jesus. And so uh, there's like eight or nine of these, and uh, we're going to be offering two this summer. One's called Loving People, uh, Doing Relationships a Whole New Way. The other one's called Serving Sacrificially, Discovering Your Purpose. And we'll be talking more about those in the coming weeks, but these are great ways to grow in the summer and connect with some new friends. Uh, I teach both these courses. This, this time they'll be cut, uh, taught via a video, but it's large screen, like over in the summit right now, for you that are over there right now. Kind of big screen, and so uh, just be a great time to grow in these two areas. And uh, you can go online, learn more about that. You can sign up online. We'll be talking about it between now and then. They start, I think, the second week of, uh, of uh, June or something like that. It's kind of after life groups are done. But we want to get you thinking about that. It's a great way to grow during the summer. So we're going to go into our time of teaching now in just a minute. But I want to give you a chance to stand up, say hi to some people around you, turn your cell phones off, and uh, get ready to go. Well, we are going to go into our time of uh, teaching right now, and if you haven't done so already, for those of you who are new, you may not know this, but inside your program is a uh, green and white sheet that's a study, uh, kind of a message note sheet, and that'll help you follow along. So if you could pull that out. Uh, If you guys are all set, I'm ready to go. You guys ready to go? All right. Father, we just pray that this time would be an incredible time of encountering with you. And that's our prayer every week. It's just, it's not like a Bible study. It's not just about coming to church. It's about really meeting with you. Uh, listening to your voice, uh, unpacking your word, and seeing what you'd say to us. Uh, so today, Lord, we just, we covet that. We want, we covet your presence. We, we covet your voice. Uh, we want you to speak into our lives, to teach, to train, to shepherd, to cause us to grow. And as we talk about this incredible, important topic today of surrender and what that happens in our life when we surrender to your will, even the tough things, uh, we pray that you would unpack, you'd speak powerfully and give us the faith to trust you to surrender those areas of our lives that are getting in the way of us becoming the people you created us to be. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in since the beginning of the year. Uh, for those of you who are new, you can see it on the screen. It's called Jesus, the Crucified King. And it's really, it's a study in the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of uh, one of the leaders of the early church. His name was Mark close personal friend of the apostle Peter. And so he's writing a gospel that's a description of the life and teaching of Jesus based on Peter's firsthand experiences. Now, this series that we're in is actually the third of a trilogy of series on the life and teaching of Jesus. And so uh, if you've been here since the beginning of this third series, what we've seen is it's the last week of Jesus' life. And He's come into Jerusalem. His disciples don't really get it that he's going to be dying by the end of the week. It's Passover week. This city is packed with pilgrims, probably a half million pilgrims coming from all over the world. Uh, Jesus has been teaching. He's been revealing his true identity as the uh, Messiah of Israel in some new and bold and provocative ways, which is leading to increasing conflict with the uh, spiritual, religious, political leaders of the nation who see Jesus as a threat to their authority. So all week long, they've been looking for a way to take him out. They've been looking for a way to arrest him and execute him, but they're real nervous about doing this because the city is packed with pilgrims. Jesus is very popular. They're afraid that if they arrest him, it will lead to a riot, which would bring the Romans down on their head. And so they're, they're kind of stuck, but we're now moving towards the end of the week. It's Thursday night. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, we've talked about this. It's Passover. So Passover is a, is a, a carefully choreographed meal that's going to take three or four hours. And so during this night, they've been, Jesus has been celebrating his final Passover with his men. They've been celebrating what we now call communion, but it's actually part of uh, Passover. Uh, last week when Dave was teaching, uh, talked about this, this prediction that Jesus makes that that uh, very soon all of his disciples are going to leave him, that one is going to betray him, and that Peter will deny him. So so now I want you to picture this. It's late at night. It's probably 11 or 12 o'clock. It's got to be before midnight because Passover has to be done uh, done, uh, according to the law by midnight. And and so now they're going to sing their final hymn, their kind of Psalm 118, Hallel Psalm, and they're going to begin walking out. Jesus is going to lead them through the city. Now remember, it's, it's, it's 11 o'clock, it's midnight, something like that. It's dark out. There's no public street lights. Um, so there's maybe some people out with torches, but they're walking through the, the streets of Jerusalem, and they're heading out the eastern side of the city. That slide I showed you before there of uh, the Mount of Olives, that's looking down the eastern side of the city. So they're walking out one of those gates. 
They're going down to the Kidron Valley that's not very deep. They're walking up the Mount of Olives. We just looked at that picture. And there on the Mount of Olives, there was a garden. Now, when we think garden, we think corn, wheat, <laughs> uh, we think uh, cherries, I don't know, uh, vegetables, we think flowers. Uh, but for them, uh, this garden was olive trees. Right? So it's really, it's a, it's a, we call it a garden, it's really not a garden, it's more like a, a grove. And uh, the reason we know that is because the name of this place is called Gethsemane, which in Hebrew means uh, olive press. Right? So it's, it's, an olive, it's an olive grove, there's an olive press there. When we were in Israel, one of the things we learned is that uh, pretty much any, any town that grows olives, they have one olive press that serves the town. Olives have to be processed within six hours or they go bad when, when you press, when, once they're picked. And so it's this place of the press. Uh, we're told that Jesus often would go there with his men. So this is the place he's going to take them on this uh, most uh, kind of impactful night of their life uh, where they're going to pass, they're all going to go to this incredible spiritual test. They don't know it's coming, but he takes them there to pray. All right, so you can picture that. It's, uh, it's almost midnight, maybe it's one o'clock in the morning, something like that. Late at night, dark, on the hillside. Pilgrims probably camped all around the city uh, out there in the Mount of Olives. But he takes them into this most likely a walled garden where he's going to prepare them for his arrest. All right? So if you've got your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 14. And we're going to pick up the story at verse uh, 32. And there in your note sheets, a section called Gethsemane, the place of the press. So let's walk through. Chapter 14, verse 32. And so they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, Luke's gospel is going to tell us that Jesus is going to go off about a stone's throw away. Now, I'm not sure how far that is. It depends on who's throwing the stone, right? Like if it's my uh, daughter, you know, in fourth grade when she still threw like a girl. Um, uh, not really. We, we worked on that. She then became a great shortstop. But anyway, like, you know, like is her, is it Yasiel Puig? I don't know how far, you know, who's throwing the stone. But, uh, you know, let's say 50, 75 yards away. Because the disciples are there. It's dark. Jesus is going to go off and pray. And Mark tells us that... Um, he takes Peter and James and John, his inner three, and uh, he, he takes them along with him, and he begins to be deeply distressed and troubled. Now, I, I want to try to paint a picture of what's going on in this scene. I want to weave together what we know from not only from Mark, but from Matthew and from Luke's account, and paint a picture, because it's powerful. I think often if we, we think through Gethsemane, we have a certain picture of what that might have been like. But I think probably for most of us, we've really not thought it through carefully and kind of pictured this in our mind. Um, Luke's going to tell us, uh, Matthew's going to tell us that when Jesus goes off to pray, that he is so shaken, he goes face down in the dirt. One of the translations of these Greek terms here that we just read, uh, one translation describes it horror and dismay. We're going to see Jesus wrecked. Right, this is not just like, a, hey, go off and quick, pray a, a quick prayer. We're going to see him laid out. He's going to go out face down right, in the dirt. Um, Luke's going to tell us that his, he's sweating so much, it's like, it's like drops of blood. It's like, it's like, like, big, like his clothes are going to be drenched. The, the book of Hebrews tells us that he's going to be crying out during this time with loud cries and tears. I want you to picture that. What Jesus is about to go through is horrendous. We're seeing a man kind of uh, peer into hell itself, and he's terrified. And what's amazing today is we're going to see the humility of God as he's going to let us in on his most vulnerable moment. Like Jesus could have gone off and done this by himself. He could have told us, man, you stay here, and then I'm just going to wait. Well, he, no one would see this. But he's letting them in on his life. He's letting in on his vulnerability. And today we're going to have like front row seats as the kind of drapes are pulled back, and we're going to be peering into his soul at a place of incredible pain. And so we're going to watch him go off and he's going to begin to cry out. 
He's crying. His body is shaking. And he's terrified. Now, it's an interesting thing because one of the questions they ask right away is, why is he so terrified? And at one level, I think we could just say, well, he's just kind of terrified because he, he, I mean, for six months, he's been telling them that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be mocked, he's going to spit upon, he's going to be beaten, and he's going to be crucified. He's been telling them this, right? And so, so, like, who wouldn't be scared to death to be nailed to a Roman cross? Go through and tell I mean, of course, right? It's like, we can understand this, but for many theologians, we wonder if there's more to the story than that. Because crucifixion was common in the ancient world. This is not an unusual thing. Hundreds, thousands were crucified every year. And not everyone responded like this. And so why is Jesus so terrified? And there's a lot of scholars who believe, and there's no way to really prove this, but there's a lot of scholars who believe that what Jesus was most terrified of was not the physical pain of the cross, but was the psychological and the spiritual pain of the cross. Because what's gonna happen is that he's gonna become the curse bearer. What's going to happen is the sin of all time is going to be put upon him. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think for a second, what's the worst sin you've ever committed? I'm not asking for a show of hands. Just, I'm just trying to picture it. Like, what is the thing you're most ashamed of? Like, if there was one thing that I could put on the screen, the worst moment of your life, you'd be most ashamed of, like, what would it be? And I want you to remember how you felt about that. I want you to remember the sense of shame, the sense of guilt, the horror of that. Now imagine that you're experiencing all of that from all time, from every person. We don't really know exactly what Jesus' psychological experience was, but there's a lot of scholars who believe that what he was afraid of, what was terrifying, was not so much the physical pain, it was the psychological and spiritual pain of becoming the sin bearer and being, having soul ripped apart as he's being separated from his father who cannot look upon the sin as he takes the sin. We, we don't really know. But what I want you to catch is whatever he was facing, this was overwhelming. And as we go through this, I want you to picture it. Because it's really remarkable. It's really remarkable. So here we go. So he, they go to a place called Gethsemane. Jesus said to his disciples, stay here while I pray. He takes his, his three closest men, the, the leaders of the 12, Peter, James, and John, along with him. Remember, he goes a stone's throw away, and he begins to be deeply distressed and troubled. That's horror and dismay in one of the translations. And catch what he says. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of what? Now, I want you to catch that. Jesus is not an exaggerator. I think what he's telling him is that I feel like I'm about to stroke out here. The pressure is so great, I, I feel like I'm about to die. It's going to kill me. And so whatever it was, that's where it was going on. He said, so stay here and keep watch. Now, I want you to catch this. This was a, kind of the biggest night of their lives so far, too. Jesus is going to go through the biggest test of his life this night. They're going to go through the biggest test of their lives to date this night too. And even though in the midst of his pain, he's looking out for them. And he's, he's kind of telling, hey, this is big. You need to stay on your game. You need to stay awake. You need to be praying. You need to be watching. Uh, kind of be on the lookout. People may be coming. And so, you know, be on your toes. And so he warns them. And then going a little farther, he falls to the ground. And Matthew's gospel is his face down. And he begins to pray that if it's possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, I want you to catch this. This is a big ask. For six months, Jesus has been telling his men, here's what's going to happen. And now it's here, and Jesus is asking his father, uh, can we go with plan B? Is there another plan? Like, like, is there any other way? Like, he's asking God to rewrite the script He's asking God to kind of go with plan B ending, you know? Like the movies have multiple endings. Let's like change the ending of this thing. And so, verse 36, he says, Abba, Father. Now, again, pictures face down, soaked with sweat, mud on his face, crying out with tears, and he calls out to his Abba. Abba is the Aramaic word 
for daddy. It's the word that a young child would use for their father. That's why Mark translates father here for his Roman readers, because they don't do Aramaic. It's interesting, we were in Israel last week, and we had this incredible guide. His name is Ronan, and Ronan ben Moshe. Isn't that great? Ronan, son of Moses. And uh, anyway, he has an eight-year-old boy. And we were asking him, because, you know, all week long we're learning little Hebrew things. You know, Boker Tov for good morning, Lila Tov, good night. We're learning different things, you know, Sababa, awesome. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> so we're learning other things. So we, we asked him at one point, he said, hey, uh, so Ronan, like, what does your son call you? Like, wh- what does he call you in Hebrew? He says, oh, Abba. <laughs> and I, I wanna, in this moment of crisis, Jesus goes back to his mother tongue this very intimate term for his father. And he says, Father, he says, everything is possible for you. And I don't miss that. Remember back in chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to, go th- uh, to get into heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. And his disciples said, well, how is that even possible? How is it possible for anyone to be saved? And he said, well, with God, it's impossible. He said, with, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Like Jesus was the ultimate out-of-the-box thinker, right? So he's taught his men this. And so he's like, God, he's like, Father, like with you, all things are possible. I know that's true. And so he says, um, can you take this cup from me? And the Old Testament, the cup refers to a person's destiny or their assignment. So for example, it could be positive or it could be negative. Like for example, in, uh, in Psalm 16, David says, God, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. And there's, it's like a plate of food, my portion and my cup. And it's a beautiful thing. You've called me to be king. My cup is an incredible cup. It's positive. But Isaiah 51 uh, it's used in a negative way where uh, God says to Israel because of their rebellion against him, he said, I, I've given you the cup of my wrath and you're gonna have to drink it, the judgment. So it's gonna be positive or negative. For here, Jesus is very negative. And he says, take this cup from me, but then catch what he says next. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And I want you to catch, Jesus is modeling something in prayer for us. And just, I wanna do a couple quick sidebars today on prayer, not the main topic, but I want you to catch this, that Jesus models how to pray. When you go to God, the only way to pray is to be radically honest. If you want to connect with God in prayer, you can't beat around the bush. and You can't, you can't pose. You have to be radically honest. Jesus is being radically honest. He's making a big ask. I don't want to go through this. He's crying out. He's, tr- he's, he's trembling. He's face down. He's begging God. He says, Can you, is there any other way? He's making his ask, right? But he's also uh, this incredible willingness to surrender to whatever God has for him. And so he's being incredibly honest, but also incredibly obedient, and so he says, but, you know, bottom line is I trust you, and whatever you want me to do, I will do. And so after this, and let's picture it. I mean, this is a season of prayer. It's not just like a five-minute deal. He's been praying this for a while. Uh, he goes back to check on his men. And so verse 37, so he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Now, this may sound kind of lame, and I, it is, it is. But, I mean, I want to cut them some slack here. Let's remember what they had happen this night. Uh, They've had a huge lamb chop dinner. They've had four glasses of wine. It's really late, and it's been a really depressing night. Like, Jesus told them, one of you is going to betray me. You're all going to leave me. Peter, you're going to deny me. And where I'm going, you can't follow. Other than that, things are cool. Uh, So, I mean, they're... You know, like when you're really depressed, you just want to go to sleep, right? Especially if you have big lamb dinner and, and you're, so he's warned them, like, hey, this is big time, this is a big night, you, you know, stay alert, but, but they just can't seem to do it. So, verse 37, he returned to his disciples, he finds them sleeping, Simon, he said to Peter, are you, are you asleep? Notice he calls him Simon, not Peter, because Peter is his name, means the rock, it's the name Jesus gave him, he's not acting like a rock right now. So he calls him by his birthday, Simon, uh, non-Rocky. 
Uh, Simon, he said to Peter, hey, are you asleep? You know, in the Greek, it's kind of like, are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, could you not keep watch for one hour? Come on. You know, this is important. Watch and pray so you won't fall into temptation. Uh, the spirit's willing, the body's weak. You know, I know you want to do it. You're just kind of tired. So once, once more, he went away and he prayed the same thing. So I want you to picture this again. Again, he's walking away, 50, 75 yards, face down, crying out, sweating bullets, his clothes damp from his sweat, mud on his face, uh, seeking God. And here's what I want you to catch. Jesus doesn't know the answer to his prayer yet. He is begging his father for plan B. His father has not answered him yet. So he goes back and he asks again. And I want you to catch this. This is very profound. Jesus doesn't know the answer. He doesn't know if there's a way out or not. Have you ever been there in your life? You're just calling out to God for something you feel like you need to an answer and you feel like he's, he's silent. And that's what's going on. And he is just kind of calling out and he doesn't know what's gonna happen. And that'll be important for later on. So he goes and he goes through his second time of prayer and he goes back to check on his men again. He's concerned about them. When he comes back in verse 40, he again finds them sleeping, okay, second time because their eyes were heavy, kind of like mine with jet lag. And they do not know what to say to him. Have you ever done something like really stupid and you just don't even know what to say? You're kind of like speechless. Like you've ever gone through that your parents, like what were you thinking? And you're like, uh, I just, like it's just so ridiculous. Like you have nothing to say. Well, that's where they're at. And so when he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say. They were so embarrassed. And now he goes off for a third time of prayer. And this third time, it would appear that God finally answers. His father answers him. The answer is not what he wants to hear. The answer is, no, there's no other way. You have to go through this. And it's interesting because Jesus is going to submit to that. He's going to surrender to that. And God's going to strengthen him. In fact, in Luke's gospel, it says during this, these sessions of prayer that at one point an angel actually comes and strengthens him. And this is just kind of a sidebar thing here, but we're going to be talking about surrender today. And here's what I believe often happens, is that when God asks us to do something that's really hard, that there is a battle within us between whether we submit or not. It's hard. But here's what happens. Once we submit and say yes, God often comes to strengthen us to follow through. And that's what we're going to see in Jesus because we're going to see him here at his moment of greatest weakness and vulnerability. But after this third time of prayer, he's going to become like a tower of strength. And we're going to watch in these next few weeks go through this incredible time of interrogation, of beatings, but he is going to handle it with a strength and a power and a dignity that's unbelievable. And I believe the reason is because he fought and won the battle here. It's like often we, we feel like, well, I don't know if I can do it. We just need to surrender. Like God will strengthen us once we surrender. And sometimes we want God to strengthen us before we surrender. It doesn't work that way. Surrender first, then you have strengthened. And so anyway, so Jesus goes his third time, and apparently the Father makes it clear that there is no other way. And so he comes back and he says, uh, says to his men, are you still sleeping? So third time, they're asleep again. And, and resting, he said, uh, enough, the, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man, which is his favorite name for himself, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So I want you to picture this. It's now maybe one o'clock in the morning. I'm just kind of guessing, but kind of guessing. Maybe it's one o'clock in the morning. It's dark out. Uh, maybe it's two in the morning. We're not really sure. He's been out three times praying. And off in the distance, he can see him coming. And I want you to picture this. There are no streetlights. You can see them coming 
from a lot. They've got the torches. You've got the religious leaders leading the way. You've got a Judas kind of guiding them to this place because he knows the place where Jesus hangs out. So he's their guide. You've got the Roman soldiers. You've got the Jewish uh, guards there coming with the chief priests and so on. And they're coming. And Jesus can see them in the darkness. He can see them coming. The hillside's probably got pilgrims sleeping all around. Uh, the reason they're coming at night, because they don't want to rest him during the day, there's a riot. So they're going to come at night when everyone's asleep, and they're coming, and they're coming with swords, and they're coming with spears, and they're coming with torches, and Jesus can see them coming in the distance. He can probably feel the, the ground move under his feet. He can feel that coming, and they're on his way. So he wakes up his men. He says, guys, enough, enough. The time has come. Uh, here they come. Uh, wake up. So next week, we're going to dive into kind of the arrest and what happens next. But today, uh, what I want to do in this time that we have is I want to spend some time focusing on a couple kind of big picture principles that jump out who Jesus is, uh, what it means to follow us in his life, and what we learn from this experience this night of his severe test, his severe uh, temptation here in Gethsemane. So there in your note sheet, there's a section this is called Gethsemane, the place of the test. And just kind of two principles, two big picture principles. I want to break it down, apply it to our lives, powerful, uh, some most important stuff that we can learn really as a follower of Jesus, what it means to follow him, what it looks like to surrender to his will, what happens when we do, what happens when we don't. So let's jump in. Here we go. The first thing I want you to catch is that Jesus knows temptation. Jesus knows temptation. He, he understands what it's like to be tempted. Uh, later on, I'm going to talk to you about your moments of greatest temptation. Right? I'm going to ask you what they are over your lifetime. We'll have a chance to think about that. But the point is, is what I want you to pull from this Gethsemane experience is that Jesus knows temptation. He gets it. He's been there, done that. He understands temptation uh, at an extremely profound level. And, and this is something that um, I think in a way kind of surprises us. Like if I were to give you a theological test, like if I were to pass out a little test sheet, you know, it's a little quiz. Let's do a, do a quiz on Jesus right now. Uh, my hunch is that most of you would get them all right. Like if I, if I were to ask you, do you believe that Jesus was 100% God in 100% man, that he's the God man, do you believe that yet true or false? Most of you would say, yes, I, I believe that. It's what the Bible teaches. I believe that. If I were to ask you, do you believe he was truly human and that Jesus was tempted and so he can relate to us in our temptation, that he can come to us? You'd say, yes, I believe that. I've heard that sometime. I've, there's some, some place in the Bible that says that. So I think most of us, uh, if asked, would say, yes, I believe he's truly God, he's truly human, and that he, he kind of understands temptation. But here's the thing. I think in our real lives, we question this. I think when you break it down, that there's a, inside of us, there's a sort of thing, well, I'm not sure he truly understands it. Like, I know he's supposed to, and the Bible says that, but I'm not sure he really gets it, because after all, he's, he's kind of God. I mean, how tempted could you be, right? I think, we tend to see Jesus like Clark Kent, <laughs> like a spiritual Clark Kent. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like Clark Kent pretends to be weak. Like, oh, Lois, I can't open that door. You know, um, I, he pretends to be ignorant. I don't know what's going on. He just flew around the earth three times. Uh, you know, like, he, like, we look at Jesus as like kind of God in the bod. Like, like he, he looks like he's human and he kind of, he acts like he's human, but he's really not. He's really like, like Clark Kent. He acts like he's weak, but he's really not. He could do it, you know, whatever he wanted to. Right? Are, are you with me like this? And so, so when it comes to our temptation and we're going through, have you ever found yourself saying, God, I just don't, like if you're honest, you'd say, God, I don't think you really understand what I'm going through. Like you don't understand how hard this is for me. And I think for many of us, many times if we're, if we're radically honest, we'd say, God, what you're asking is too hard. You don't know what it's like. To be human. You don't know what it's like to, to really be tempted. And if there's anything that we can pick up from the story in Gethsemane is that Jesus gets it. 
If there's any question of your mind, like, does he get temptation? Let me ask you this. When was the last time you were tempted and your resistance was so strong, you were laying for hours face, dirt, face down in the dirt, crying out in tears, resisting temptation? Like, when was the last time you put up that kind of fight? Right? What was happening here is extremely profound. And we've often kind of like sanitized it and we read it quickly and we don't take the time to visualize this. But can you see him there? Can you see him face down, his body soaked with sweat? Uh, the sweat's been dripping off his face for an hour. There's a pool underneath him. It's muddy. His face is muddy. He's calling out to God. He's begging God. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know what the future's gonna hold. He doesn't know if his father's gonna say yes or no to his request. He's fighting with every cell in his body. He's fighting. Like he gets it. And here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you, when was the first time in your life you experienced the raw force of true temptation? How far back can you, can you remember the first time, and I'm not talking about little temptations, I'm, I'm talking about one of those Romans 7 type temptations. Remember Romans 7 where Paul says, hey, the things that I, I, I ought to do, I don't do, the things I don't want to do, I do, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm talking about that kind of temptation. What, that's, where, where like every cell in your body is screaming out to do something that you know is wrong. Maybe it's some sort of sexual temptation. Maybe it's a, a pure pressure thing. Maybe it's a, uh, uh, a lie at work that if you tell it, you'll get the job, or you, you, if you don't, you won't. Or when was, when was the first time in your life you experienced the power of sin, the magnetic pull of sin? Because we've all experienced it, right? I'm assuming you're human, you've experienced this. You're looking at me like kind of, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so I'm not going to ask for any volunteers here to tell me, but I'm going to tell you one of the first times for me. Right? Uh, I remember I was about eighth grade, and uh, this story is going to sound kind of weird because things were, the world was so much different then. But when I was in eighth grade, uh, you know, I loved Jesus. I was a Jesus follower. Also, a young man, hormones are kicking in, right? Sexuality is becoming an issue. And... Uh, I was elected in, in uh, the eighth grade class, I was elected the ASB treasurer. So in our school, we didn't have uh, a cafeteria. It was a new junior high that had been built. There was a cafeteria that wasn't built yet. And so they'd bring in like hot and cold lunches every day, had a couple options, and you could pay for it and buy, buy it every day. And so my job, this is where it's so weird, my job was to collect all the money, the hundreds of dollars every day, and count it and make a deposit and then take it down the bank a few blocks away all by myself. That's where I first started funding my 401k. Uh, so I want you to picture this. Every day during sixth period, I didn't go to class like everyone else, by myself, I would count these hundreds of dollars, fill out a deposit slip, go out to the bike rack, take a random bike, Different one every day. Let's try them all out. This wasn't the temptation, by the way. I didn't see any problem with this. And I'd ride a few blocks down the, you know, deposit the money. And then right there was a 7-Eleven. Right? Now, in that day, uh, soft porn, Playboy, Hustler, that kind of thing, was not like it is now, where it's like in plastic bags at the back behind the counter. It was on the front row, the bottom section. Now I'm a follower of Jesus, right? I know this is wrong. I'm in eighth grade. Hormones are kicking in. It's where I learned the power of sin, right? Like this is a place where I began to experience Romans 7. I know it's right, I know it's wrong, the battle. 
that begins. And I tell you, some days I won, and some days I lost. And the days I lost, you're going back to God, you're confessing it, you're asking for forgiveness, you're asking for strength, until it happens again and the battle starts again. And sometimes you win, and sometimes you lose. Have you been there? Maybe it's not the issue. Maybe it's not, maybe that wasn't your issue, it's some other issue. But it's that area of your life where you, you just say, I'm never gonna do that again. That's just wrong. And you find yourself doing it again. It's part of the human condition, isn't it? There's something wrong with us. There's something broken with us. And here's what I want you to know. Is that in this passage, what we see is Jesus gets temptation. He knows what it's like. And that's important because if he doesn't really know what it's like, it's going to be hard for him to come to help us in the midst of our temptation. Like we need a Savior who can relate, who understands. And this is one of the reasons Jesus took on flesh and blood. So he could understand and he could become that person that we can go to can help us with this. That through his life and his death and his resurrection, he can share his resurrection power so we can overcome. The way this is put in Hebrews, there on your note sheet, Hebrews chapter 2, it says, since the children have flesh and blood, he's talking about us as Christ followers, we're human, we have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. This is why he became one of us, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And then notice what it says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see that? Since he suffered when he was tempted, think Gethsemane, face down. In a few chapters, we'll come back to Hebrews. He's going to talk more about it. Think Gethsemane, face down, crying out, sweating drops of bullets. Feel like he's about to die because of resistance. This is important. The next time you're facing a major temptation that seems too big for you, you need to remember that he understands. And this is an interesting thing because often we think of temptation, we think of the person who really understands temptation the most is the person who's just kind of resisted and resisted and resisted and then it's just it's overwhelmed them and they finally give in. And like they really understand what temptation's about. But I want to challenge that. Because the reality is the person who really understands temptation the most is the person who goes through that same process and doesn't give in. And the reason is because when you're resisting temptation, the longer you resist, the harder it becomes, right? Like when you give in to temptation, the pain of resistance leaves. The pain of regret comes. But the pain of resistance quits. So it's the person who resists to the end who experiences the full force. And this is what Jesus says. We'll probably never understand what it's like to be him, kind of the God-man in this temptation moment. But I think you can see in the intensity of what he's going through that he understands temptation better than any of us ever will. He knows this. And so that's important because the next time you're in the midst of a major temptation and you're tempted to say, or Satan comes to tell you, he doesn't really understand. Why don't you give in? He doesn't know what it's like. How could he really expect you to do this? Because it's just too much to ask anyone to do. No one could do that. You have to recognize it's a lie. The reason he came was so he can understand and he can help you. And that leads to number two. The second thing we learn from this passage is that Jesus knows obedience. I want you to think with me for a second. Often as Christ followers, we think the greatest problem of the human race is our sins, plural. All right? In other words, that 
We've all rebelled against God and his leadership in our life, and therefore we've committed high treason against our king, and we're under judgment. There's a, a warrant out for arrest, and so uh, the, the payment is death, and we need to be saved from that. And we look at that as that's why Jesus came, to save us from our sins. And of course, that's true, but it's only half the story. The reason Jesus came was not just to forgive us from the judgment from our sins, he came to save us from the power of sin itself. And see, the story the Bible is telling you, there's something really wrong with the human race, that when we rebelled against our true king, that not only do we experience death at every level, you know, um, emotional death, psychological death, relational death, spiritual death, physical death, not only do we experience death, but something broke in the human heart. And as a result, we were all born with this natural propensity, this magnetic pull to the dark side. We've all experienced it. We've all experienced Romans 7, wanting to do the right thing and doing the wrong thing. We've all experienced that powerful pull of sin. Something is wrong with us that when uh, our first parents rebelled, it's like we've inherited their spiritual DNA and it's a DNA of disobedience. In fact, in, in Ephesians chapter two, that's how Paul describes the human race. He describes us as the sons of disobedience. It's like it's in our blood. And so what Jesus came to do is not just to forgive us from our sins, but to restore us to relationship with God, to change us from the inside out. And this is why when we're born again, we get new DNA. Now we have the DNA of Jesus. And when you came to Jesus and you gave him his life, you received that DNA of Jesus. And with that comes this new hunger for what's right and good and true. This is why when you first come to Jesus, there's a new sense of moral compass in your life. There's a new sense of kind of true north morally. When you come to Jesus, certain changes happen. There's a new love for God, there's a new love for people, and there's a new sense of right and wrong and a hunger to do what's right. But we have to learn how to obey. We've kind of disobeyed our whole lives. And when he's obvious, and when he's not so obvious. And if we're gonna follow Jesus, if we're gonna move into the future that God has, if we're gonna experience uh, his plan for our life, if we're gonna have an impact on our culture, and our impact on our families, if we're gonna leave a legacy, that we have to learn how to obey. And this is one of the hardest lessons in life, is it not? It's, it's, hard, it's hard. But here's what I want you to catch. Jesus came to teach us. And this is an interesting thing that you may be surprised to hear this, but did you know that Jesus himself had to learn to obey? And you say, wait a second, I thought he was perfect. Well, he is, he was, but there's a difference between a perfect fourth grader and a perfect 30-year-old. Right? And so Jesus had to pass test after test. And the test kept getting harder over his life. Gethsemane was his final test. Would he submit into his father's will even when it was incredibly painful? It's interesting. There in your note sheet, there's the first verse from Luke chapter 2. And Luke talks about this, how Jesus had to grow. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Right, so this is when he was 12 years old. You remember that scene, he goes down to the temple and then his parents are looking for him and he's then talking to the scribes and the religious leaders. And right after that, this is verse, this, uh, they finally find him and they're upset with him. What are you doing? He said, well, I'm becoming a teenager and that's what teenagers do. Uh, anyway, in Luke 2.52, this is Luke's comment. He says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. In other words, he's getting smarter. He's getting wiser. And he's in favor with God and man. His father is becoming more and more pleased with him. He's, he's right on schedule. He's learning how to follow. He's learning how to obey. And when you, when you get to Gethsemane, this is what Hebrews 5 says. Look at look what, what it says. It says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. That's Gethsemane. It's describing Gethsemane to the one who could save him from death. Father, with you, all things are possible. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Not my will, but yours. 
But although he was a son, right, perfect, he learned obedience from what he suffered. See that? He learned obedience from what he suffered. In other words, Gethsemane and the cross was more than just dying for our sins, more than dying to rescue us. This was his final exam. This was the ultimate test. He had followed and passed every exam. If you think of the life of Jesus, the story of, in the gospel of Mark, it starts with temptation. Remember chapter one, we watched Jesus being baptized. He comes out and the spirit drives him into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by Satan for 40 days. That it's only after he defeats that temptation, he's able to come out in Luke's gospel in the power of the spirit. And, through, and in Luke's gospel, it says that Satan left him until a more opportune time. There were other major times of temptation. What we're seeing here in Gethsemane is this final major time of temptation. And so you see the bookends is how the story starts, is how the story ends. Jesus passed every test along the way. But this was his final exam, and it was the hardest. And he surrendered to God completely. And because of that, Jesus has become a source of eternal salvation to us. And as our older brother, he is able to come along and put his arm around us and and lead us, teach us how to obey. He's able to help us learn. And this is the key to our future. It's the key to our life. It's It's the key to our thriving. It's the key to our impact. See, the lesson to learn how to obey is the most important lesson in life. It unlocks the door to our future. And here's what I want you to to catch. That the only time we can learn how to obey is when obedience is very costly. Like you can't learn obedience when it's what you want to do anyway. Are you with me in this? Like like I've said this before, but like gambling is not a big temptation to me. Some people it is. After the service last night, I had an older lady come up and just share with me. She's struggling with this. Wants some pros. Pray together. This was her thing, right? It's never been to, to, like going to Las Vegas and doing big gamble is not a temptation to me. It just seems so obvious. There's a reason why the casinos are so big. Like who gave them all that money? You know, we did. It's like, hey, can I have your money? Yes, here. Build an incredible casino. Thank you very much. Did you have a good time giving me your money? Yes, I did. Great. Works for both of us. <laughs> like, so for me, like, I'll never learn how to obey in the area of gambling. Like, I, I've only bet on one game in my whole life, and it was the most miserable experience. <laughs> I was in high school, voted on the Rams when they were still in Los Angeles. <laughs> they were my team. They're playing the Cowboys. I hated the Cowboys. So when I, you know, I, I bet on them with one of my buddies. And then, of course, my team lost. It was like the most painful loss of my life. Not only I lose to the Cowboys in a playoff game, but I lost money. It was so painful, it scarred me for life. <laughs> Never bet since. Not been a big temptation. But there's other areas, Right? So we all have different areas. Like, I gotta know what your temptation is. It could be a physical thing. It could be a sexuality thing. It could be a money thing. It could be a possessions thing. Um, it could be more psychological type of thing. It could be a bitterness about someone that, that hurts you and you're gonna hate them or you're gonna get your revenge. Or it could be a gossip or it could be a slander thing. Or it could be a manipulation thing. It could be an anger issue. Um, it could be a spiritual thing like with the occult, and you just love the power that you've come in. Con- I mean, it could be anything. But here's what I want you to catch, is the only area we learn to obey is when it's hard. When God asks us to surrender something in our life that's extremely painful, he asks us to surrender something that you feel like, if I surrender this, I'll never be happy again. That kind of thing. That's where we learn obedience. You don't learn it in any other way. You you learn obedience when God tells you this is the wrong person for you. 
You need to get out of that relationship. And you're hoping that they're gonna be the person you marry. And it just feels so good, but they're not a believer, and you know what God said, and you've kind of, and it's just hard. It's hard to get out of that relationship and give up your future. It feels so right and it feels so great, like it makes you so happy, and to surrender that. That's when you learn obedience. When you learn obedience is when you're in a career that you know if you just compromise a little bit more, you'll go up the ladder, and if you don't, you may lose your whole career. That's when you learn obedience. You learn obedience when there's someone who has hurt you so bad and God asks you to let it go and forgive them and everything within you wants to kill them. That's when you learn obedience. Are you with me here? You learn obedience when there's someone that you're attracted to and you've gotten too emotionally close with and it's like you want to have an affair with every fiber in your being. It just feels like this person will make you happy. See, these are the times we learn obedience. We learn obedience when it's costly. That's the only time we learn it. And C.S. Lewis, you know, kind of famous writer, author, you know, Cambridge, Oxford professor, Chronicles of Darnia fame. He writes about this in one of his books. It's called The Problem of Pain. And he's not always the easiest guy to follow, but I want to give you this quote because he's so powerful. He just nails this, this whole dynamic. Basically what he's saying is that as a race, we've rebelled against God, and so we've got this DNA of disobedience that we've inherited, and the only way for us to be healed is to learn how to surrender to God in an area that's very difficult, and that kind of cancels out the act of Adam's rebellion, and it changes us. Let's just follow along. He says, there is one right act, the act of self-surrender. And I want you to circle that, act of self-surrender. That's what we're talking about. Which cannot be willed to the height, can't be done to the max, by fallen creatures unless it is unpleasant. Painful. The supreme canceling of Adam's fall must be when the creature, with no desire to aid it, there's no natural desire, Stripped naked to the bare willing of obedience. Embraces what is contrary to nature. It's not natural. And does that for which only one motive is possible. This is Jesus in Gethsemane. There is nothing within him that wants to go to the cross. The only thing that's driving him is his love for his father and his desire to please his father. He says, such an act may be described as a test of the creature's return to God. And so I want to ask you, in your life, what is your area? These areas don't come along every day. It's not like every day is one of these things. But sooner or later, as you follow Jesus, you will come to one of these crossroads. You'll come to an issue. There'll be something that you want that God's gonna come and say, you can't do that. And I want you to catch this. It's not because he's trying to restrict you. It's because he loves you and wants to set you free. He'll never ask you to give up anything except something that's holding you back, holding you, holding you down, just something destructive in your life. He's your Abba. He loves you. But sooner or later, you'll come to one of these issues And you have to decide whether you trust God or you trust yourself. And it's in that moment of self-surrender, saying, not my will, but your will, that determines our destiny. It determines our growth. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of people who claim to be Christ followers that lives haven't been transformed, lives haven't been changed, they're not walking closer with God, there's no sense of his presence, they're going through the motions, it's more of a church goer than a Christ follower, and the reason is because every time they come to a crossroads where God asks for surrender in an important area, they say no. You see, it's, it's this act of surrender that releases the power of God in our life. 
And this is where we so often misunderstand. We often look at people that we admire, they love Jesus, they're growing, life, God's working in their life. We, we often think, you know, like, oh, well, I could never be that because I would have to take all this willpower and, that, and I'd have to change and I'd have to do this. And so misses the boat. God can change you. That's not the issue. The issue is surrender. Often we think we have to make ourselves something. We don't have to make ourselves anything. We just have to surrender. And we surrender, it releases the power of God to turn us into something we could never be on our own. See, Jesus learned obedience through the things he was suffered. And, and because of that, he became a source of eternal salvation to all of us. That's what scripture says. So the question I have for you today, is there anything in your life right now that God has been asking you to surrender and you've been resisting? Or maybe there's nothing right now. You're just kind of walking with him. You're doing great. And if you were to ask him, he would say, no, you're just fine. But here's my challenge. My challenge is we go in this final song, worship this week, I'm going to challenge you to go before God and say, God, is there anything that's getting in the way of my growth? Is there anything that's holding me back from becoming the person you created me to be? Is there anything you want access to that I'm resisting that's keeping me from fighting? Is there anything you want to talk to me about? And you just open yourself and you ask. And here's what I found. When we ask, he will answer. Maybe in your shower three days from now. It could be you're driving along two weeks from now. But if there's something there, he will bring it to the surface and you'll know it. And then the battle will begin. Or he may just say, no, we're good right now. You're just doing awesome. But it all begins with us asking the question. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be a transformed people. We don't want to go through the motions. We don't want to miss what you have for us. And God, I pray you give us the courage to follow Jesus in his footsteps, that we'd be willing to die with him to the old life, that we might rise with him to a new life. And we pray that you'd shepherd us. And I pray even now in the quietness of this moment as we worship, as we come before you, I pray, Lord, that there's something in our life that's holding us back, something that we've been refusing to give to you, something that's become our God, something that's become an idol, something that's become more important than pleasing you. Lord, I pray you just identify that and then you'd give us the grace to trust you and to say yes. God, if you can change me, I give you permission to change my heart. We pray, Lord, as we bring you our offering and use these, these offerings to build a place that's truly surrendered and therefore empowered to live life as it's meant to be lived and share the message of Jesus in new and profound ways for others to come and to surrender their lives as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship. And God, that's our prayer today. We want to surrender to you. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, let me just talk with you as my brothers and sisters. And let me just speak God's love over you. This is such a hard thing to learn, to surrender, because it's painful and it's scary. And we're not sure how it's going to work out. In these deepest areas of life, it really feels like to surrender is to give up our happiness. I want to just speak God's love over you and remind you that who your father is, that he is your Abba. He created you. He loves you. He has sent his son to die for you because of his, he's so passionate about you. And he's got a plan for your life, but he can't carry it out until you learn to surrender, until you learn to obey, until that broken bone of disobedience is reset. And so I want to challenge you to step out and to trust him. And when those crossroads come, to surrender and to trust that he loves you, he knows best, he cares, he's smarter, and you'll never be sorry. Because when we surrender and obey, that we are healed and we are empowered and we can move into our future. And so, God, we come to you as a church and we want to be a surrendered church. We want to live surrendered lives because we know that with surrender comes the power of the resurrection. That when we die to the things that you say are destructive, we rise with you to a new life. 
And so, God, we pray that you'd give us the faith and the courage to trust and to obey and to follow you and your example of obedience in the garden, that we might rise with you to a new life. And we pray that you'd use us to release your power and release your story and release your message and to bring many into the kingdom as a result. And Lord, so we come today and we pray that you teach us to trust you and surrender. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you can be with us these next few weeks as we continue on. Jesus is now ready to start running the gauntlet. Over the next, what, 12, 15 hours of his life between now and 3 o'clock when he dies, He's going to go through some intense interrogation. He's going to go through some beatings, some mockings. He's going to go through a Roman flogging that's going to tear his body apart, and he's going to be nailed to a Roman cross. And then a couple days later, he's going to rise. And it's going to be an amazing journey. And I just encourage you as we enter in this last home stretch of this gospel, you would make it a priority to be here every week. If you can't be here, podcast it. Because we're going to go on an incredible journey as we watch Jesus going before us, preparing the way for our salvation and understanding that in just new ways, some new ways you've probably never looked at it before. If you're here today and you need prayer uh, about anything, whether you're over in the summit right now or here in our interim worship center, in both cases, down to my right, we have a prayer team who would love to pray with you about whatever's on your heart and mind. So right after the service, head on down there. But until we see each other again, may the Lord be with you. And may you know his love in incredibly and increasingly profound way. May you understand his passion for you. And may you understand that when he asks you to die, it's only so that you can live. May you understand that the path of obedience is the path of life. And may this week be a week you surrender to his leadership in new ways that you might rise to him to the life you were created to live. And that together we pursue him as a full-on passionate movement of Christ followers. Amen? Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. See you next week.